0: Three Righteous Mamas is a podcast that is on a mission to transform our country. We tell the stories that matter, celebrate the hope and power of pissed off mamas who are building a better future for all of our children. Hi, I'm Martha Pinkoffs. I'm Muna Husseini. And I'm Christina Sensun Ramirez. And we are Three Righteous Mamas. Um, Also, please subscribe and tell us what you think about Three Righteous Mamas by giving us a review. Also, tell all of your friends about us. The more uh, listeners we get, the happier we are. Actually, we have a lot of fun just doing this, but you know what I mean. Um, So we have a great show for you today. Today, um, we get to talk to Paula Ramos, who is amazing. Um, You may know her from Vice, but you'll hear more about her soon. But we're gonna talk to Paula about the changing America we are all part of and the role that Latinos are playing And we'll play in redefining a country as big and diverse as ours. Um, Before we get there, though, we're going to talk about some silly stuff that our kids do. Y'all, we had um, parent-teacher conferences this week. And, you know, it's always fun to hear how the kids are doing in school. They're great. We're so fortunate that they're actually in person, right now um that has been the biggest change but uh t- my daughter towns is in the first grade and she's brilliant and she just is really marches to her own drum and so we're sitting in the teachers conference it's all good stuff and then her teacher mrs kreger says now i don't know if you've noticed yet but towns doesn't really have a go button it's like Joe and I looked at each other and just like totally fell out because I've never felt more seen, but this child will just like, she missed going to the playground because she was reading a book in the reading nook. And she didn't even know that the entire class had left until they came back. Oh, wow. She's just like, that spaced out. Um, But she is a total trip. And I felt very seen and happy about it.
1: I cannot imagine parent teacher conferences yet. I had a friend, was it like this? I had a friend that posts that made me laugh for like hours that they went to their toddler's first parent teacher conference. And he said, I vacillated in between, Oh my God, my child is going to win a MacArthur genius award. And he's an attorney. And he said, my client pleads not guilty.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of like that. So, so funny! I've
2: been worried about my four-year-old being illiterate for forever because he's like not in school and not in Montessori. And like, I'm not doing anything with him at all. And um, <laughs> the uh, yesterday I was talking to my husband because we're driving to to Dallas over the weekend, but I didn't want to say we're driving to Dallas and pull that rookie move in front of my kid because then he'd start freaking out and want to leave. And so my, my parents actually live in the suburb of garland and so i was talking to my husband and i said hey are you okay if we leave to g-a-r-l-a-n-d tomorrow and my husband looks at me and he goes what and then my son who's like riding by on his tricycle he's like dallas daddy <laughs> and i thought okay I said how come my husband didn't know what
3: i spelled out
1: your son was so smart he didn't he knew what you spelled out plus the code word for it you know he already did that leap
3: yeah we can't
2: spell out candy anymore he already knows he's like where is it where's the lollipop (laughs)
1: yeah sugar high i will say yeah sugar fixes everything when martha moona and i did our first photo shoot i think we all bribed our children with sugar to hold still 100 Yeah. yeah i promised cookies yeah i think ours was ice cream i think yours were lollipops and uh, I was like, oh, good. We all are using the same parenting techniques here. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah my, my bribing didn't work. I still like, so one of the headshots, uh, backstory, all one of my headshots, I'm super cheesing, but you can't see off camera. My son is literally yanking me. I'm trying to like hold still. And that was awesome. Um, funny other story is uh, my my son has this clock that that tells him when he's allowed to get out of bed and it broke and uh so he's been coming to our room at like you know 4:27 a.m. or whatever asking like can I get up now and uh he came to our room and I was so tired and I was like hold on let me see what time it is but I don't think it, 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 I moved and he goes, Mommy, your alarm says 609. And I was so proud because I didn't know he knew his letter or his numbers. <laughs> yeah. I was like, Yes, you can go watch cartoons. Go you
1: numbers. Yeah. <laughs> Keep it up. Keep it up. That's how it is every morning here, too. Santi wakes up. Well, actually, Santi escapes from his bedroom every night. And it's the like little feet I hear. Ch-ch-ch-ch a blanket gets thrown up on my bed a stuffed animal like 12 stuffed animals like he comes with an army of stuffed animals get on my bed uh I feel like kids are so great because they just give you so much humor to your life and even in moments like where you're not seeking humor they just like shift it Santi and I were driving today Well, we were getting in the car and my car is a little dirty it needs a clean but Santi is like your car mommy is dirty and uh (laughs) also his cute little voice, his toddler kind of voice. And then he's like, we're going to put it in the dishwasher. <laughs> because he's still doing right. it. I was like laughing so hard with my mom and it's something so small. And I kind of, sometimes when he gets the words wrong, I know I need to correct him. So I did correct him, but sometimes I don't want to. Cause I'm like, Oh, it's so cute. I want you to say dishwasher instead of car wash your whole life. So adorable. <laughs>
0: we yeah. didn't tell towns forever would say silver, not silver like <laughs> zilver with a, a z and we river kept wanting to correct her and we would be like no 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 you can't we're gonna keep it <laughs> too cute you know
1: yeah too much too cute too cute
0: yeah, yeah. um should we talk to paula i'm so excited to talk to her me too tell us about her christina
1: yeah, so let me introduce you all to our incredible guest. Paula Ramos is a host and correspondent for Vice and a contributor for MSNBC and Telemundo News. Paula uses media and digital outlets to spotlight the voices of a diverse America and break down stereotypes and mobilize the community towards civic engagement. Her first book, Finding Latinx In Search of the Voices Redefining Latino Identity, can be bought. Online or at your local independent bookstore. And you can follow her on Twitter at PaO Ramos or go to her website and learn more at paularamos.com. We're so glad to have her here with us. And we're excited to talk with her about the changing America that we're all part of and the role that Latinos are playing in redefining a country as big and diverse as ours. Let's get started, y'all. Paola, thank you so much for being with us. We're really excited to dig in and learn more about your book and the stories that you tell in it. But first, we always ask our guests to talk about how if they had a mom or a maternal figure in their life that influenced them to become the person they are today. Mm -hmm. And so obviously your dad gets a lot of hype, but we also know your mom has had a tremendous impact on you. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit. About her and how she made you the person you are today.
3: Yeah, and you're right, and that's it's funny. That's my mom and I always talk about that. She's like, "Do people even know who you were born from?" Because my dad always this is true. My my dad always gets all the attention, but I think that's that's part of the beauty of my mom. You no, know? she's always sort of taking a, a backstage role, but at the end of the day. I'd say that she, you know, she's formed who I am. She is a single mom. She raised my sister and I um, her entire life. And she's someone that, that always, that never, um, that made decisions because she knew they were right for herself versus for anyone else. And I think that takes a lot of bravery. And, you know, she, we, we moved cities because she felt like that was the right choice, not because people told her to do. She changed careers. And and throughout the whole time, she's, you know, she she asked for very little. Um, and I think she did a spectacular job raising raising my sister and I. And I always think about, you know, I think from my dad, I've learned a lot of things about like power and journalism. But from my mom, it's always been this idea of of finding dignity in everyone. You know, my my entire life. She always taught us that no matter who you're talking to, no matter who you're in front of who you're in front of, and um, you always find the dignity in people. And that's a that's a lesson that I carry with me um, throughout every story that I've done, every interview, and, and truly every every industry that I've worked on. Um, and I have to say, and she is the best writer in the family, which she also never gets credit. She is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful writer. So if if I have A little bit of um of a gift in writing it has everything to do because of my mom so let's i always like
1: to honor our mom's name so tell us what your mom's name is and i know she's also on twitter as well she's
3: on twitter yeah her name is gina gina she was born in in havana um, and moved to Miami when she was very young. Then moved to Spain, and it's funny because when I when I look back, I, I some of the steps that I've taken in many ways, I it's a reflection of hers. You no, know, we I I moved to Spain when I was very little, and then I moved to the U.S. approximately at the same age that my mom did. We went to the same college randomly, like it wasn't even planned. Um, and the way I approach life is is very similar to her. So there's a lot of her
1: running through you.
3: Yes, 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 a lot, a lot.
1: Um, yeah. So I'm holding this amazing book that you just wrote um, called "Finding Latinx: In Search of the Voices Redefining Identity, Latino Identity." Mm-hmm. And it just came out. I'm sure it's. You also have interesting stories about how to do a virtual book tour. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Honestly, yeah, that was one thing I, I was I was very looking forward to doing these in person. Tour is going back to a lot of the cities that I that I wrote about but um but no but it's, it's it's still it has been pretty incredible though to be able to do it well I'm excited
1: to do an in-person event with you in Texas whenever uh that can happen again mm-hmm. but um this book is incredible and I would just wanted to ask you you know tell us why what inspired you to write this book I mean you already mm-hmm. you have your voice out in a lot of different places um yeah what were you trying exactly what you wanted to tell in this book?
3: Yeah, I think um, for me, it always goes back to to 2016, right, and and working in the Hillary Clinton campaign and having that little fancy title that I had of deputy director of Hispanic press. And I think in in those moments, in those campaign moments, I was convinced, as I think the majority of, of folks were convinced in that campaign, that Regardless of the outcome, Latinos would show up in these huge numbers, right, in the face of someone like Donald Trump, and that Latinos would be responsible for ensuring in 2016 that someone like Donald Trump would have made it to the White House. And so, obviously, fast forward, it's the day after the election, and that wasn't the case, as, as you all know better than anyone, right? Less than 50% of Latino eligible voters actually showed up. So, I think in that moment, I had this like realization that. I, right? I a person that was working in in politics, I barely knew what the hell I was talking about. Like I barely knew what the like Latino community was, what the voting block was. Um and so part of the book is is going back to a lot of these battleground states, going back to a country that I thought I knew and completely rediscovering it, right? Talking to people that I never talked to in in years in politics. That was one part of it. The other part of it is is then looking at myself and then thinking how I had changed in the past decade, right? how I was different from my parents' generation. Um, and then taking a moment to pause and understand how what I was going through, how I identified not with one hat, but with three different hats and how I moved around the country and the world was very different from my parents, but it was very similar to a younger generation of Latinos that we just see this country in a different way. And so it's sort of those those two stories merged and, and is what finally Latinx became about.
0: I can't wait to read the book. Um- I have not gotten to yet but i can't wait and i i wonder if you could just spoil a little bit of it for me and and Mm -hmm. tell me like is there one story that you dug into while you were um while you were writing that really embodied um
3: yeah, I mean the the story itself is um, essentially it's a it's a cross country road trip, right? And so I start from mm-hmm. the Central Valley in California, make my way you know down Arizona, Texas, through the border, through Florida, which is my home state, um, to the South and the Midwest. And and again, the idea was um, to find sort of Latino voices that have been lost in the hybrids of, of cultures. Um, after Latino voices, the indigenous voices, Latinos in the Midwest or the South. Um, and every story is different, right? I find right. I talk to trans folks in in the border, and I talk to indigenous folks in South Carolina, and you know older Latinos and conservative Latinos. And so it's a little bit of of a um, a portrait um, of of the voices that have always been in front of us, but that don't typically get these platforms. Um, I'd say the the story there's many stories that that struck me, but the story that perhaps has impacted me the most was meeting. Carolina Lopez who's a transgender migrant in Arizona and you know Carolina has a story that we all know she fled from Latin America when she was younger because the average age um, in Latin America as a trans woman is, is less than 35 years old um, and so she came to this country with dreams that everyone has which is simply to have a better shot at life and you know this country showed her the opposite she came here she was once again detained she spent You know, more over a year in Eloid Detention Center, was unable to get a job and so forth. But the story of Carolina is that at least the metaphor that I took away from is, you know, during particularly now during COVID, we all sort of can see a light at the end of the tunnel. No, we find strength because we see something. Something gives us hope. Um, People like Carolina, which I think is a story among the Latino community, can walk through dark tunnels without seeing any light. No, and they just keep going and they keep going, they fall down and they get back up. And that resilience, I've never found, I've never ever found that type of resilience in anyone other, like the trans community has taught me so much, but I think it is a resilience that is palpable across the Latino community. And it's one that I found particularly among the younger generations of Latinos that saw the older generation sort of, you know, normalizing pain and injustices, and they are rejecting that. Um, and, And in Carolina's story, I saw a lot of that.
0: You know it's so i read something um i read something a, a little bit ago uh in a survey that found 22 percent of latino millennials that uh, identify as queer lgbtq That's right. and yeah. it's like nine percent higher than any other group and yeah. i wonder if that is is that bravery to identify because i do believe that higher percentages of, of all of us are mm-hmm. queer um the numbers yeah, that we put down that if that's if that bravery is because of exactly what you're talking about with Carolina
3: I think so I think about that a lot among among all of the millennial generation in this country Latinos are the most likely to tell you that they're queer more so than black folks white folks and API folks and so yeah I think I, I think that tells something I think um you know I think it is it, sort of what we saw in this election as well but it is it is the culmination of people finally taking pride in their identity, right? And it took many years. And I can speak for myself, I wish I would have come out at an earlier age. And I wish I would have done it with more pride at an earlier age. But I look at the younger generations, and they are leaning into it in with a lot more force. And I think part of it is yes, part of it is is watching the assimilation that our parents went through. Mm -hmm. But then it's also this reality of most of us were born in this country, right? And so only yeah. us get to redefine what it means to be American in a way that our parents never did. And I think that's a huge difference where like, you know, our parents waited for answers from others. So other people define what it meant to be American, what this American dream meant.
0: Mm-hmm. We're not waiting
3: for anyone else other than ourselves to do that. And so I, I do think that that makes people um, walk around with more freedom. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I read it. I I interpret that as as. As more bravery not mm-hmm. a different uh a different actual percentage of queerness in completely the population. Yeah. Oh yeah,
3: I'm sure. Yeah. And I'm sure again, I mean I'm sure those those numbers have been probably consistent for a while, but um but I think you're right. It's it is entitlement to being to being brave, you no? Know? Mm-hmm. And which which is a privilege for for many people. It's a beautiful and thing. Exactly. Um yeah. but yeah I was thinking about that. That's funny.
1: It's also my favorite stereotype when I was running Jolt, people would say, But Latinos are so conservative and they're homophobic. Right. And I would be like, Have you met Latinos? Right.
3: That's so true. <laughs> most of them are queer. <laughs> Not most of them, but a huge but percentage of them are. are. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And, that's, and that's something that I find so much throughout the book. Even when I was in Texas, no, in in in. They're talking to Latinas about abortion and reproductive right justice no and it's it's it, that's part of the story too There's so many stories that have been built around us and so many stereotypes and taboos, some of which are real, but many others are just sort of these myths that that media has created for us, and so a lot of the a lot of the book is just breaking down those those stereotypes
0: yeah so I feel like it's um there's a, a new term that is in your in your in the title mm-hmm. of your book Latinx that a lot of our listeners won't have been introduced to necessarily, yeah. or if they have, they won't understand the meaning of it. And as a queer person, I particularly love the non-genderedness of it. But I would love um, I would love it if you would just kind of give a yeah like a preference about it and and tell us how it came to be yeah. So I think when
3: when you say the word Latino or Latina or Hispanic, hispana, hispano, I think there's regardless of what you think about Latinx, when when I say those words to you, there is certainly an image and a stereotype about us that comes to mind, and um, and I think that's sort of the case with these words that you know Spanish, Latino, Latina, it's it's a gendered language, and um, Hispanic is is a word that in and of itself erases. Um, you know, the, our, our history with indigenous folks and black folks. And so Latinx, I think, originated as a term in, in the early 2000s as a way to include the queer Latino community. But I think the beauty and the curse of this word is that it certainly, it's, it's, it's suddenly evolved, you No, know, and suddenly more people are using it and people outside of the queer world are using it. And so the way that I see the word now is that X is nothing but an invitation for anyone in the Latino community that has ever felt left out. Um, and that means the over 3 million Afro-Latinos that are in this country. Um, it means indigenous folks. It means um, queer Latinos, trans Latinos. It means older Latinas, perhaps I wanted to, to break their own gender norms. And it also means understanding that among us, there are conservative Latinos, right? And so the way that I see it right now is in the vocabulary and, and, and the moment that we are right now, it is the only word that at least starts to capture the reality of, of 60 million of us. We can get into why people don't like the word which i think is super interesting like this this utter rejection to this word which i think says a lot of the moment that we're in the biases that we carry there's some people that don't want to see themselves in an image next to black latinos or trans latinos and so you know that's sort of the discussion that that we're in No, why why do why do so many people hate this word
2: yeah so i worked in diversity and inclusion in the corporate space and there was quite a dialogue around what is the preferred term and what do folks self-identify as? And um, I don't know that we ever got to, okay, this is the term we should use. And then, uh, Christina, I know that um, you may also, from from your own experiences, have a view on this as well and terminology. You know, I remember
1: reading when I was younger Juan Gonzalez's book, Uh, Mm -hmm. Harvest of Empire, about Latino Mm -hmm. identity, right? And he actually talked about the time Latinx didn't exist when he wrote his book, but that there was no term that could fully capture everything that it was to be Latino. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And because of just what Paula said, that being Latino, people have an idea of what they think it is, but it's Black, it's Brown, it's White, it's uh, Indigenous, it's Mestizo, it's -hmm. um, Afro-Latino, it's European, it's many, many mixes of cultures that are bounded by geography, by colonialism. And so Mm -hmm. it's hard to ever find a term that people prefer. I know for me, I being in Texas, I know most folks here um, say prefer or Latino. Um, Those are the two terms they prefer. For me, as long as someone is addressing me with respect, I honestly don't care what they call me. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really an individual journey for people to decide. that is for them um but i think for me one of the things i'm trying to constantly capture and how we think about the latino community i'm wondering for you paula and that is that we live in this duality as latinos especially here in texas Mm -hmm. where we many in our community like me i'm a child of an immigrant many of us are newly arrived to this country and that is the primary image that people have of us Mm -hmm. however we are also a people that lived in these lands before the united states was even constructed and like how do you and your journalism try and honor the complexity of that identity so that both of those can be seen because usually just the one of us as immigrants is seen
3: no that's right and I mean that part part of the book was was just breaking with that general narrative right I feel like the narrative as you just said it, the narrative that mainstream media has had and and companies have had of us is the immigrant narrative Is, is that's the story that like my my parents say and my dad has said on tv the whole life no the latino it's the immigrant and and so so part of the book was trying to 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 break with that and understand all of the different the many different stories that go beyond immigration but then the other part and it's perhaps the one that was more enlightening to me is when i had the opportunity to talk to indigenous folks like the mayan community and to talk to mayan immigrants and that have that were just crossing the border and you know they would tell me to my face like like we hear it all the time but it's like we didn't cross the border no the border crossed us right sure i'm coming from guatemala and i'm, I'm mayan from guatemala but they would tell me like this this is our land and, and i always think about this one moment where i'm in i was in i was leaving georgia and i had just spent like a couple of days with the with with the indigenous community there and and of course to the foreign eye to me i looked at them in, de- in the deep South, right? I mean, it's like Trump flags and, and these red counties. And I was like, what does it feel like for you, you know, to be in this land in this like rural part in Georgia? Um, doesn't it feel strange to you? And he looked at me and was like, no, he's like, these are our mountains. Like I am in nature. Like this is the sun, the trees, the grass, like this is home to me and it's always been home to me. And so I think in that moment, I realized like just the, something that I take for granted, right? But just the importance of, of land, no? And just the relationship that different communities have to land and so here was this person that I was treating as a foreigner myself, you no, know, with my own biases. And he was telling me, like, you look at you look at this land as if it's Trump's land, this is our land. You no. Know? And so I've, you know, it's it's something that I have more to learn about. Um I did a lot of reporting with Vice in, um, you know, in Navajo Nation this year, in southern Arizona with the Thono Thumb nation there. Um so I, I think all this to say that I it's it's something that. I'm unlearning a lot of things and, and trying to relearn, you no, know, and from them. So, so yeah.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna say, like for me, I constantly um on the last episode we had, we actually were talking about how our moms influenced us. And I always said, My mom, mm-hmm. you know, she didn't go to school past the eighth grade, and um, she's you know, she's dark skinned and I'm lighter skinned, but she always wanted us to be really proud of who we are. And mm-hmm. I always think about how um for those of us that are mestizo like how we haven't learned yet to celebrate fully our indigeneity and my mom constantly yeah. teaches me just what you said like recently at a grocery store someone she was in line a woman was in front of her and the woman turned to my mom and said are you a citizen hmm. and my mom said i am are you <laughs> and but yeah but things like that like it's powerful yeah and my mom said of course and then my mom said i'm native american because my mom as she's like gotten into who she is now identifies as um both mestiza and native american because she knows like this is actually my culture and who i am and right um, i've been told to reject that that's who i am but these are my lands just as they are as much anybody else else's like and there's something you have to especially for us that are latinos we're kind of like you said it's an act of resistance to teach ourselves mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it's not the way um we have to construct our identity or, or, our, or our understanding of place
3: yeah
1: that we have a very special place as people that are tied to land um yeah i feel like we're just starting to there have been many waves in our community of people trying to
3: understand and speak to that and we're still trying to, yeah. learn to speak to that and even writing this book right even i mean the term latinx is very much obviously rejected by Indigenous folks, and that, those those were part of the conversations that I would have with them. They were like labels. Why why are you calling me Latino, right? Why are you calling me Latinx? Or like we are the first people of this country. You guys don't get it, you no. Know? And so part of you know uh, the book isn't by no means is it an argument to say that the majority of Latinos call themselves Latinx, but it's at least it at least it forces us to have these conversations as to like you know, who, who is under this, this one umbrella, but that was, that was another interesting conversation that I had with, with with a lot of the Mayan indigenous folks, they were like, this, these labels of Latino, Hispanic, Latinx, like, that's, we don't believe in, in labels like that, which I thought was interesting.
1: I'm like, we don't believe in labels like that, but let me ask you a question about a label like that.
3: Yeah, Yeah, I know, I know.
1: Which is, I mean, like, we are, we just went over the fact that we're all different colors, right? We're all different, um, That the the idea that Latino, that we come from Latin America, right, including this America, but now we are the largest ethnic group in the country, and you know, with numbers comes incredible potential transformation. But the reality is, even though we are the largest ethnic group, and you know, from all of your reporting that we don't have the political power, the economic power, the media representation that community deserves, especially given our size in this country. And it's something I think a lot about as a Latina mama myself, Um, you know, my son represents um, one in four children in this country that are Latino, right? Mm -hmm. That people don't realize that aren't part of the Latino community that um, one in four Americans now that are children are Latino. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how, you know, what is your advice to Latina, I know you're not a mom yourself, but like a Latina, someone that's a storyteller in many ways, like a Latina mama myself, plus Muna and Martha and all the moms listening about how we start to tell a more true and diverse story of who this country is so that all of our children can actually feel seen in it.
3: Yeah, I mean, the story for me, I think we saw that story in this election, right? It was, it was young, it was youth, it was the young people that weren't waiting for, any media company to tell their stories. They weren't waiting for either party to come and give them funds to organize. They weren't waiting for, for any big entities. They, they did it on their own, you know, the victory. I mean, Christina, you know this more than anyone. The, the victories that happened in this country, the reason why we're, we're leaning towards change is because um, young Latinos or young communities of color saw themselves that they were worthy of change. They saw it themselves. No one told them, no one gave them the money, no one gave them that approval. And they did it. Right. And so that that gives me hope. It's like the the, the answers and that that's sort of the, the difference that I see in this election. Right. People voted not necessarily for for Joe Biden. They voted for themselves. And I think, you know, I didn't necessarily see that in 2016. I you know, I, I worked in, in obviously in in Barack Obama's campaigns. And and yes, he offered hope but many people voted for him right in this vision for hope. And then suddenly it's like the narrative is shifting and because young people are taking it into their own hands. And so as long as that continues to be the case, and I think we're just very much seeing the, the beginning of that movement that you know you all have been part of. As long as that continues to be the case, and I have no doubt that stories will be told the right way, right? Because people aren't waiting for others like megaphones. You no, know? we have a phone, which is the most important thing. We have pen and paper, and we're we're seeing the narrative is changing. So um I don't know, that that's that's what what gives me hope at the moment, you know, seeing the young organizers and, and understanding that the story of this election was because young people self organized You know,
2: this is so interesting for, for me to listen to as we're chatting. I, I think about the Muslim demographic in this country and the similarities mm-hmm. in the sense that Muslims represent so many different countries, so many different languages, so many different yeah. cultures. And then the term Muslim sometimes is, is mm-hmm. equivalent to, to race. in the sense that it's like this, like overarching concept that binds folks together, but the diversity is huge. And there are also, I think it was something like 30% of Muslims in this country voted for Trump. And so there's, Mm -hmm. there's like, there's different camps and, and different reasonings for that. Um, very similar to the Latino community. And at the same time, uh, Hispanic community, Latino community, mm-hmm. however you want to call it, right? Like there are folks here, like I have friends who were telling me growing up in the valley that they they had their fingers broken for speaking Spanish at school. Mm-hmm. So this is not history from a long time ago. Right. This is even in our own generation. And if folks whose families have been here for hundreds of years are struggling with identity, Mm-hmm. And immigrants in my own community, of course, are going to be dealing with that. And then there's also, of course, yeah. like the the political rhetoric makes yeah. it hard to like balance that as well because there's fears of, well, I don't know if I want people knowing what my background is. And yeah, you know, some folks pass and some folks don't. And then right, just what you talked about with the youth, I'm loving that as every generation comes through, there's more of this strength of like, okay, going back to our core
3: mm-hmm. and like
2: really holding on to it and speaking up for it. And yeah, do you think what's different about the youth that they feel so bold or courageous to do that in your journalism? What have you noticed? Because you're, you're talking not only to folks that are indigenous or, in Florida, and then going across to Arizona, like what thread do you pull there that's in common for the youth across all these different groups?
3: I mean, I think we, we touched on it a little bit at the beginning, but I think it's, 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 it's what you see growing up, you No, know, if you, if you grow up for, for, for two decades, and you're seeing your parents and the older generation sort of normalized to this assimilation that you're seeing, you no, know, normalizing your parents sort of and being told that they can't speak Spanish, you no, know, in order to succeed in this country. If you see your mom every single day, um, you know, be thankful for making money, even though it's less than a white man. If you see your grandfather, you know, working in 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 the fields every day around pesticides and you normalize that because you've been told that you're lucky to be have that opportunity. Same, you know, if, if, if you see all of these different justices, I think for so long, for so many in our families, were seen as gifts and as part of this dream and, and we had to always be so grateful. And then I think the younger generation that in a sense is more privileged because many of us were born in this country, right? Many of us now suddenly can navigate this world in Spanish and in English. Um, many of us have rights that our parents didn't. I think that arms you with the necessary tools you need to to break away from that, no? And to 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 want to speak up. And so again, we're not just speaking up for ourselves, no? You're suddenly speaking up for yourself and then suddenly for an entire um you know, legacy of of your ancestors and your elders that you carry on your shoulder. And and I always think back to a conversation that I had with Monica Ramirez, and obviously, you know, one an incredible activist. And she said, look, the, the difference between now and then is 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 we, you know, back then our moms and our grandmothers sort of maybe had to be silenced because they didn't feel like they could lean back and fall on anyone's hands. Right. Now they do. Now they know that if they they want to speak up, they have an entire army of women right behind them that will catch them. And I think that is that is a difference, you no, know, that 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 now there there's more support, right? Because I know I can speak up because I have that right in a way perhaps that, you know, my my Cuban grandmother doesn't, you no, know, because she doesn't know English. Um, and so so, yeah, I think that, as we said before, that makes you lean into your identity with more pride. That makes you speak up with more pride. That makes you not take for granted your rights. That makes you want to vote. And, and I think we're, we're seeing, we're seeing that, that culmination right now.
2: Wow. that I actually got a little emotional hearing yeah. you say that and thinking about what we're even trying to do here, right? The world for our kids and giving our kids that support so that they can fully be who they are and, and bring their gifts to the forefront. And, um, so, wow. Thank you for sharing that. It, it actually makes me want to ask you with both of your parents Mm -hmm. being journalists and then becoming one, talk to us a little bit about that as well. Cause you know, you grew up with exposure to the industry in a way that's very different from most people and then stepping, stepping into it. And then, with that braveness or that courage?
3: Yeah. I mean, they, you know, my, my mom, politics and journalism was, was always around us growing up, right. My, my mom's family, my mom included a, um, you know, left Cuba under the Castro regime. And so, you know, freedom of expression and freedom of press um, was always a principle that they worked around. And my dad, uh, left Mexico because he was censored in the radio there, and so growing up, I've always always told that your your words and your your whether vocal or the your written words are the most powerful tool you can have. And I remember growing up, I'd always, i there was a moment where my dad um, was playing with the idea of perhaps running for office in Mexico, and that's sort of what I grew up with. And then at one point, years later, I asked him, I was like, why Why aren't you doing it? Why don't you Why don't you run for office? And he said, as a journalist. I feel like I will always have more power than politicians, always, because I can ask questions and it is my task. Um, and that's what I grew up with too. You know? It is my task to always question question power. You know? That is the most important thing you can do. And so as a journalist, that's, that's, that's my job. And so I, you know, growing up, I, my parents and I always talk about this, right? That I, and I think the millennial generation and Gen Zers, I don't just have to wear one hat. No, I can be a journalist and then three years I can go back into, back into politics. And so I can navigate the United States and the systems with more freedom than my parents did. And that's sort of how I've seen my career. No, you know, I go where, where I believe the balance of power is. For years, the balance of power to me was in the Obama administration, right? And, and believing that hope and change was plausible inside of politics. And I believe that change was in power was possible if I elected someone like Hillary Clinton to be the first women president. And now I believe that change and in, in power is outside of politics to question power from outside. And so, those are two lessons that I that I you know that I that I learned from them. Just understanding where the balance is. So,
2: yeah.
1: speaking of uh, questioning power, so mm-hmm. for some folks that don't know who your dad is, because there are some folks that are like outside of yeah, I mean,
3: why would you? Yeah,
1: God. no, everyone. I mean, but like. So people that don't know who Paula's dad is in questioning power, um, for folks in the Latino community, everyone knows who Jorge Ramos is, Paula's dad. Um, You -hmm. know, he has long been on the side of telling stories that were often overlooked. And um, I think folks will also remember him not just from like his incredible journalism over the last several decades, um, in Spanish and English, but, um, talk about questioning power when he, uh, was kicked out by Donald Trump mm-hmm. of a press conference for standing up and refusing to back down, um, mm-hmm. ask the questions that he needed to. So I'm wondering for you, like, well, and then your dad got detained in Venezuela also yeah. last year, right. When he was down reporting. Yeah. So here he is refusing to back down from power in both of those places and so i'm wondering for you you know what's that like as well
3: yeah i mean i think you know i grew up with my dad calling me and being like i'm on my way to cover x war you no or i'm on my my way to afghanistan i'm taking a plane you know talk to you in a couple weeks Um, and so you know that that was that was the norm but i will say when when he when he got kicked out of of Trump's press conference I remember I was flying and and so I I, when I landed all of a sudden my phone was blowing up People were like is your dad okay and 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 again I think when when you talk about him being kicked out of places like in Venezuela that that is he he has a privilege that many other local journalists in Venezuela couldn't have no if he were if my dad would have been a local journalist in Venezuela he probably would have been killed or murdered um, but he knows the privilege that he has. And so he uses it well. But in Trump's scenario, where I saw him getting kicked out of, pr- of, of, this, of this press conference, what was shocking to me was that I honestly, in his face and those moments where he's interacting with him and getting kicked out, like the, his facial expression was one that I had never seen before. Even as he was covering wars, even as he's been literally kicked out of Cuba from Fidel Castro, even if he's gone through all these scenarios, that face. And that expression he had in his eyes was one of like, this is something I've never seen in my life, right? Because here we are in the largest democracy in this country. And I and I could tell that he saw a big red flag in a time I think when many of us didn't. And I include myself. I was working in the Hillary campaign throughout this whole time. And my dad would warn me throughout the entire campaign. He he kept telling me, he's like, You guys are not seeing what I'm seeing. Like you guys are missing the point. Like there's there's stuff that's happening outside, and you're living in this bubble. And I myself even sort of, you know, diminished that and didn't didn't want to believe him. And so it's just been this seeing him cover Trump has been impactful in the sense that he saw something probably a year before many of us truly understood the threat of Trump. Um, And that's something you just don't expect in the United States.
2: When you step into situations as a journalist that could make you vulnerable right these examples christina gave about being in you know a, a press release with trump or being mm-hmm. in venezuela and being detained let's say you're in these we'll call it uh, confrontations doing mm-hmm. your job has your father given you different advice being worried mm-hmm. about you because it's different as a parent and it's different
3: as a child yeah um i mean i think i've only made him really worry once i think overall this the stories that i try and cover you know haven't haven't put me in a in very dangerous situations um luckily i think when i went to because of his history as a journalist he has to be careful when he's in mexico obviously because of the way that that journalists you know have been murdered there and so when i have gone to the border myself he worries a lot and so his advice has been to tell me to get the hell out of there, but I also know that his advice in a very silent and subtle way is to just stick with the story and, and do it with bravery. and so that's something that I navigate right because I know that he would do it in this situation, but I know as his daughter, he wants me, he, he wants he doesn't want me to be there. and so there's the, the one time where I was where I was hearing his voice and trying to figure out what to do was when I was interviewing a, a member of the Juarez cartel and Ciudad Juarez. And he, you know, it was a situation that I knew my dad wouldn't be happy of, of having me interview and sit in front of of a gang member who was murdering asylum seekers at the border. But at the other hand, I knew that he wanted me to tell the story because it was a time in our history where asylum seekers, because of Trump's policies are stranded in the border and the drug, the drug cartels are taking advantage of that, right? And they're killing asylum seekers. Um, because of the United States policies, and I thought that was a an important nuance to to make. And so I always struggle with that question because I don't I don't know I know him as a journalist; he'd follow through even in dangerous situations. But I think as a dad, he wants me to do something different. And so I, I'm always trying to figure out like my my instinct is to is just to make him proud and 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 follow through with the story and and yeah, and just be very conscious of of the privileges that I have. You know, I think it's important to use them in certain situations. And so far, I think so far I've been safe for a reason yeah
2: Yeah. you know as Christina was mentioning earlier your your father isn't just a journalist he's a household name right like everybody knows him and in that sense those are really big shoes to fill right with both of your parents being journalists and and um, yeah you know you following in their footsteps like talk to us about that you know struggle or is it like what's difficult or what, what goes through your mind when you're in some of those situations thinking, gosh, like my parents did this before and now I'm here. And like, is there pressure?
3: You know, they're actually, they're so supportive. um, And so much of my career at the beginning was, was different from theirs. Right. I I chose politics at the beginning and perhaps, you know, I'll, I'll choose it again, but it it, it felt, it felt different, but, but honestly, throughout the entire journey, it's been, they have rooted for me in in the most incredible way, you know, the entire throughout the entire time. And and it's never been I mean, I they've paved ways for me. They've inspired me. They've they've supported me. And so I, I carry that privilege with, you know, with being very conscious of what that means and with a, with a lot of honor Um but I'm I'm still learning from them, no. Like I see what like I see what my dad does. I'm like you're on TV, but now I'm I'm reading your articles and you're also doing this podcast and then you're you're on Instagram. Like how do you do all this? So I still feel like I'm I'm still I'm still learning, no. And I and I strive for that. And then I see my mom, you know, write these beautiful stories and then she's also a producer. And so I'm very much in the like initial stage of it and and also. I'm also navigating this whole world that they have. And so we're both learning, right? I get to do a lot of the things that they're doing in Spanish language. I'm doing it in English and in Spanglish. And so we're constantly comparing notes of like, you know, the, the, the differences of, of the these sort of landscapes that, that we navigate. So it's been it's been pretty cool. But I don't I just I'm just sort of like inspired and, and, and proud. So I, I've never felt like that type of, of pressure.
2: That sounds like a, a much more rich exchange. So I work in tech, I, yeah. I'm an executive in the, in the tech yeah. field. And the other day, my daughter basically schooled me on something on my phone. And I just was like, I don't.
3: <laughs> so it sounds like y'all's, y'all's relationship is for a little For now. Bit- <laughs> yeah, for now. No, it's, yeah, he's, he, my, my dad is like, you know what? And sometimes I can't trust him because everything I do is like great in his eyes. And I'm like, there's no way. Like even as I was writing this book and I made the mistake of having him be sort of like, like I would show him, I made the mistake of having him read through the drafts and now my mom, because I know my mom is like a harsher critic and the real critic, um, but I was a conscious decision because I knew my dad was gonna be like, it's great, keep going. And he did, but I always have to be very conscious of that because it's like too rosy, you know? But yeah.
0: Yeah. As a journalist, You use your you use your privilege to challenge power. You use your place to challenge power, and as such, um, you create culture when you do that, and and start to shape and model the culture um, that we will all eventually live into. Yes. And I think in that you are creating the world for our kids by calling power what it is when it is. Um, and I just. I as as sort of a final thought, I would love to I would love for you to like give us advice on how what spirit can we take to challenging power to build the world for our kids as like regular people every day.
3: <laughs> well, none of you are regular people, so that's not, <laughs> I feel like you all have to show me that. Um that's a that's a tough question. Um I don't know. I feel like right now the the sort of path that I'm in is by being a better listener, um, and I feel like that's also been a lesson learned of the past two years. Where, you know, perhaps of what because of what my parents told me, I thought I knew how to challenge power. I thought I knew I had these answers, or even going into interviews and stories, you know, I always think I know what the answers are going to be or what the questions are going to be, and I've learned that sometimes, especially as I wrote this book, I got the best answers when I was saying nothing, when I was just listening. And like, that has been a very important lesson for me in the last year to just not to just like shut my mouth and just take like listen from from people without searching for these answers. And so I don't that doesn't I don't know, that doesn't answer your question. But for me, it's just been truly the best the best chapters in the book and the best stories that I've told is when I was looking for nothing you no know? and I think that's how that's what inspires people that's what inspires a lot of um, um these relationships building you no know, and trust um and so I it's just been I don't know build building trust
0: has been very very important throughout this whole. I thing. actually think that that's kind of, that's just kind of the perfect answer um, oh, no, but but thank you. But so yeah, no, so- I, I
3: was just thinking, thinking out loud, like it it truly the hardest part of the of everything, I think, right now is 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 building genuine trust. And I'm sure it is for mm-hmm. you all when you're making when you're doing these interviews, right? People are at a time where you want to make sure that no one feels like they're being like their stories are being exploited, right? And that you're challenging power the right way, and that you're not speaking for others, but that you're giving people a platform. And those are those are really hard things to to navigate. And now I think it is sort of my job to just like to listen and build trust, and I think organically, it'll it'll lead to somewhere
0: positive. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. No, I think there's no question. Um, thank you so much for being with us tonight. And no, can we host something all. when the world gets open again? I would love that. I would love that. All right. Well, but of- I, I love this podcast.
3: Oh. But I think it's such a great idea. I love the. Um, it's a different vibe. And it's like a totally different conversation. I've been doing so many of these book conversations, so I really this is like a very. I really liked it a lot. So thank you guys. Thanks a lot.
1: Thanks, yes. Well, thank you. And tell your mom she was the first person we asked about. Oh,
3: I will. Oh, for sure, I will. It's I so like funny. They didn't care about dad? They were like, Kian. Oh, I know. No, I, don't worry. I will. I, that's the first thing I thought about, and I and I I very much appreciate that a lot. So thank you. I, guess I have one I'll, last
0: question. Go ahead. Yeah. Where do you live in Spain? I grew up in Madrid. You did? Yeah. I spent a year in Sevilla. Ooh. Mm -hmm. So Sevilla is beautiful. Yeah.
3: Spain's great. I miss it.
2: Well, Paula, I'll I'll say this before we let you go. I am so excited for my daughter Mm -hmm. to watch this interview specifically, to be able to listen to your words and hear from you you and have a role model like you to look up to Because everything that you're saying resonated for me so much. But like, you you know, when mom says it, you don't necessarily (laughs) care when you're 12. But like someone who's as accomplished as you in doing the things that you do, I just think it's it's really like there's a power in seeing. Mm. What someone yeah. is being and doing, and so I I feel so much gratitude not just that you're doing the work, but that you took some time to to chat with us today. And can you hold up Paula's book one more time?
1: Yeah, and we're <laughs> gonna put it all in the link. Everyone needs to buy a copy. Thank it's you, an amazing book, and it just came out, and and you can get a copy that way when we eventually bring Paula to Texas.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: um,
2: finding Latin X, y'all.
1: Yeah, finding Latin X. Oh yeah, I just held it up. No one. Can... Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Finding Latinx uh, by Paula Ramos, beautiful book. Paula, we know how busy you are. So thank you. Thank no, you for sharing of um, your um and your heart with us. So thank no, you.
3: it's an honor. Thank you. Thank you.
2: In listening to Paula talk, that question that you asked her at the end, Martha, I think that that was it for me. That was everything mm-hmm. around. We really need to be listening Mm -hmm. and understanding it, listening to understand. Yeah. And it's almost like we have conversations to push our views on folks, but you need to turn the conversation on its side. Like let's listen to respect and build trust and understand. And then everything flows from there, right? Like to quit being in such a rush to get things done and to force action because action without that foundation of like caring for each other ends up going sideways and we cannot rush building relationships or building respect. And I found that to be super, super impactful and powerful.
0: I thought that was amazing too. The part that really like, I kept almost like stopping and trying and, and interrupting which wouldn't have been good listening. <laughs> model but um when she was talking about the um indigenous people in georgia and their ownership how the ownership and responsibility of the land moves with them not dependent on what land they stand on and i feel like in that spirit is one of the biggest solutions to you know the climate crisis that bears down on us, is that if, the, if we all carried the earth with us like that, um, we would make really different choices that would deliver something different for our kids.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think what I I was thinking about, you know, we, we started out really talking about um, wanting to talk with Paula about how we build a world where all of our kids are seen because Latinos are this large ethnic group and then coming to the term Latinx, which there's all different kinds of feelings about. There's also different kinds of feelings about Latino and Hispanic. And remembering what she said, and then also remembering that like, because Latino identity is so diverse, right? That's what some people don't realize, that it's so expansive. It's so many places, so many stories, but that there all are cultural ties. And that there is no term that's perfect enough because we're we we're trying to figure out how to tell all of these stories and give them light. And I kind of think that's what the United States is. <laughs> you know? Totally, the United States is like, Oh, how do we tell our story? And it's because we try and tell it sometimes in a way that's too monolithic mm-hmm. and so being like, you know, I think if the United States and we've talked about this in other episodes, and I think it's partially because we're Texan, right. It's like, what if we if fully embraced how beautiful, how big, how diverse and complicated it is to be a country that is so many different ethnicities and races, but we embraced it like it was the best fucking thing in the world. Because <laughs> it know? is. And and that there would never be one term to truly define it. There would be a story we would tell where we could all of our stories could be seen. And that's really, I think what hit home for me. Um, because I'm one of those people that to me it's not necessarily the the term or the language it's the feeling of respect and like how she said listening right
2: yeah. I guess I'll I'll wrap on a point here when when she was talking about the younger generation having their voice and how um, you know they felt like they can break away because they're carrying the legacy of their elders on their shoulder. And that, you know, she was talking about, well, maybe my mom and my grandmother couldn't feel like they could do that. But now because we have an army behind us of people holding us up, we can do that. And I was sitting there listening to that, thinking that there is a dominant culture in our country. Our demographics are changing, right? Christina, you said that that the Latino representation in this country will start to be a majority uh, in the next uh, couple decades here. And does there really need to be a dominant culture anywhere? And I, I think, no, there doesn't because if we have an understanding of respect for each other there's no need for anything to be dominant because the respect and care that allows all of us to sit at the table and raise our kids together and play together and live together in our extremely diverse communities. That's the world I want us living in. And I think that's really what I took away from our conversation today is, is that what we're doing here is so important because it is the world I want to live in. And so more of this, please, more more of Paola doing her journalism, more of everyone, because everyone's voices should be heard and all of us being in that sort of mutual, uh, respectful and compassionate and caring relationship in community is so important.
3: Thank you for listening to Three Righteous Mamas on behalf of the Texas Signal. The podcast was edited by Sarah Tatveed. To find out more about who we are and what we do, please visit our website at texassignal.com.